I believe that role-playing games are art. Specifically, role-playing games are theatre, which means theatre artists are natural role-players. What sort of hat am I wearing? It's <laughs> <laughs> the important detail. <laughs> is, it, is it like a tricorn hat? Yeah, He has sure. got into full theatre mode now. <laughs> right, this okay. is amazing. So they want to be entertained. I'm going to give them a shot <laughs> with my iron and my tricorn hat. Life's a game. The world's our stage. And we're Merely Role Players. Merely Role Players, a podcast where dramatic people play role-playing games. Hosted by me, MJ Starling, in association with Blackshaw Theatre Company. Find us at merelyroleplayers.podbean.com or search your usual podcast app for Merely Role Players. Welcome to another episode of The Prestige, a podcast for cinephiles and movie lovers of all stripes. Each week we're picking a movie, we talk about the movie, we discuss the themes and ideas that the filmmakers are trying to express through the movie and give our review on what we think about it. And as always we end the show with my personal favourite bit of the show, recommendations for further reading, further watching following the movie of the week. But as always we start off with what else we've been watching. Uh, since our last record. Due to the magic of uh, podcast production, there's maybe a very short segment uh, this week, guys. Um, but Sam, what else have you been watching? Well, I, I've managed to fit in two things since we last recorded. Um, one, uh, those of you who listened last week may be aware that we're on um, Harry Potter watch at the moment. This is what, what my wife can stomach in the 41st week of pregnancy so we watched um the sixth harry potter film which is my favorite harry potter film um and yeah i I enjoy that there's nothing more to say about it we talked about it earlier this year um i also watched something that i wouldn't have watched with her didn't want to watch with her when she was in the room because it's fairly uh depraved violent it's uh it's a tv series by david fincher set in the 1970s about the early days of psychological profiling in the fbi and it seems to be in in makeup and in not makeup but in in the way it's made up the way it's put together it seems to be very close to zodiac and i enjoy that film it's just a tv series of that film essentially um and it's it, as you expect from a french fincher production it's very faithful and quite enjoyable watching the subject matter is fairly hard-hitting um as you might expect from what the thing is about. But yes, those are my, um, so that's my recommendation for this week. It's a TV series called Mindhunter, which is on Netflix now. Fair enough. I have heard good things about Mindhunter. Um, mm. The host of another show on Kaiju FM, 
called the Space Jam Continuum was singing its praises to me the other day. So it's on my list to get to at some point. I have also actually managed to slip a new TV series in since our last recording. Um, and it's the new Star Trek series, Discovery. Now, I don't know what Sam's exposure is to Star Trek, but I'm a big, big fan of uh, Star Trek and have been for many years. And the new series, Discovery, is the first time in a long time we've had new proper Star Trek on the TV. And it's brilliant. I'm only an episode in, so I can't speak too highly of its course over the next series. But so far, I'm very much loving it. I'm loving the feel of the early Federation days. Um, and I'm loving all the actors in it. So yeah, it's a sort of a tested um, recommendation because I've only an episode in. But so far, really enjoying it. I don't. I have to say, I don't know very much about Star Trek at all. Um, I think I watched the original series when it was repeated on Sunday tea time, sort of thing, mm. in the early nineties. I haven't really. I mean, I I was never a fan of the Next Generation or Voyager or any other incarnation, so I didn't watch any of those. Um, so when the reboot happened with Chris Pratt, not Chris Pratt or Chris Pine. Which Chris is it? Uh, Chris Pine. Chris, Chris Pine. Yeah. Um. So when the reboot happened with him, it was sort of a clean slate for me as well because I hadn't seen very much of it. Um. But yeah. So how does the in in terms of sort of comparing to the the old generation or the new generation? Where where does this TV series sit? This takes place before. The first series. Right. So, just a bit, bit way back before all of that, and it's not the Enterprise, it's a whole new ship. Um, but we'll see. I mean, the, obviously the movies have taken off like a slightly different timeline track. Mm. And they've been intrigued to see if this right. is the same, or if they're still going to do the same same world. But uh, I should keep our listeners updated, I'm sure. Good. Um, well, this week we are bringing to a close our Joel Schumacher mini-season with the 2003 film Veronica Guerin. It's a waste of time when I'm writing. I'm a reporter. I'm supposed to be writing about things that matter. I have a great life. I have a great family. But I feel like I should be making a difference. Eight kids from this block alone died from drugs last year. All of them under 15. He's writing about it. Nobody cares. Veronica Grin is based on the true story of an Irish crime reporter who is, spoiler alert at this point, although I don't think it counts as the film's autobiographical, she is killed by drug lords in the mid-1990s. Kate Blanchett stars and there's minor support from Kieran Hines, Colin Farrell, others, but this is basically a Blanchett vehicle. Now, looking at the story of Veronica Grin, the real-life crime reporter, it makes for interesting reading. But, Rob, does it make for a good film? No. Technically. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I found this film, in the same way that we kind of talked about it in the middle last week, I found it quite dull at times. Uh, it didn't really grab me. Um but I don't think that makes it for an interesting review. You know, my, my reaction to it was one of of disinterest. I think it's one of the things. It's hard to separate out 
um, where you were when this story happened and the movie afterwards. There's the line in it. They say every Irish person knows where they heard, knows, knows where they were when they heard that Veronica Guerrero had been shot. And you know, she was shot when I was ten. I, don't, I, I have zero memory of this event at all in my life. And so, the film I feel kind of expects gravitas for the very nature of the story. And it doesn't get that from me as a member because I'm not going to connect with it. In the same way, stories of 9-11 will still resonate with me because I remember where I was when that happened. I remember when I heard stories of 7-7 in London. I remember when I heard, you know, Death of Diana. All these little things happen in my life. And so watching a movie of them comes with a gravitas already. Whereas mm. Ryan Waring was a character I knew nothing about. I've heard more about this film than I've had about the original person. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not Irish. Um, I wasn't around that time. It's kind of one of those things which I've missed you by. So I wonder mm. how much the context and pre knowledge of this story plays into expectations as an audience member. I think also it's a very interesting. And we'll touch more on this as we go into review. That my reading of the film was that I didn't really like Veronica Graham much as a character. Um, I no. didn't enjoy her her persona in the film, but I, I'm unsure as to whether that was intentional from from the creatives. So, are Kate Blanchett and Josh Rumacher intending to make her a little bit dislikable or very dislikable? Um, what you know, it, what, mm. are they, what are they trying to say about her her role and in many ways her complicitness in her own murder? And we'll touch on that more in later. But Sam, what about you? What were your reactions to this to this film? Um, similarly to you, really. It, it just, it, I I was disappointed by this film. It's it's annoying because, as as you've already established, we were a little bit too young and also on the wrong continent or the, in the wrong country to um, understand firsthand anything that happened. Um, and it's a pity because I enjoy films about aspects of history that I know little about, mm. and it it feels like you had. I mean, this is two thousand and three. The year before this, you had Bloody Sunday, which is about the other end of the troubles in Northern Ireland, the other end of of disputes on in Ireland. So it feels like it would have been good to have a good film about this and it just this this film was not a good film. And I thought the thing the thing that you touched on there, the fact that she's not really a likable figure, that would be fine because and we've talked before about how you don't actually have to like the protagonist to engage with me, you don't even have to engage them in order to engage with the film. But it seemed like what Schumacher was trying to do was make her a bit of a spiky character whom you didn't get on with. But then at the same time, with the whole Man United fan and um she was I mean she was a she was a very public Man United fan. But that it felt like those bits, the bits where she was playing football with the kids, and when she was obviously 
overcome by something that just happened and she went out to play football on her own. It felt like those moments were trying to humanise her and trying to make her a likeable character. Mm. And I thought, you can't do both of those things. You can't make her so that we don't engage with her and then at the same time say, well, actually... Let's let's ha- have you engaged with this character. And I think the, 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 the defence against this often is, you know, that obviously was a real person, and so every single person in the world is likable and unlikable in their own way at different times. But my refutation of that, my, my refuting of that would be that the filmmakers have got to have a point of view on this. You mm. can't turn around and say, this is pure, honest move-making. Because even a documentary has... has a point of view. So I just wanted to head off that past any sort of comeback from anyone. There. But I appreciate that Veronica was a real person and so she gets to be unlikable and likable and she gets to be a good person who's also a bad person. But I don't think this film explores that complexity. It, you know, if that was the idea that this movie is going to explore the dual nature of Veronica Guerin, that she was at the same time unlikable and spiky but a family person and cared for it didn't do it she just swung wildly in my mind from being aggressively silly in her own well-being and well-being of her family to suddenly being oh no actually i'm really scared of all this well but i'm not anymore and it just seemed to you you didn't didn't buy into her as a character Mm. in that respect to, to to take her forward I think, and and I think that's partly, I mean, that partly must be down to the direction of it, that you can't, I mean, as you say, you can't fall back on the idea that she was a real character because there have been successful biopics made, um, even even quite recently, that, that seem to focus on not particularly likeable characters who could do a good job of it. I think one of the one of the things that it seemed to me that Schumacher was trying to do with this fairly obviously was draw a comparison between her and Eric Cantona, who I will, I mean Rob, you can switch off for twenty seconds here and talk about Eric Cantona. Um, he was he is widely regarded as one of the best in his position of all time, certainly in England, certainly in the Manchester United team that was being so successful at the time, the mid-90s. But he wasn't a very likeable character. I mean, he had bans for various things, including famously karate kicking a fan when he didn't like what the fan was saying in the terraces. Um, So Eric Eric Cantar is held up as this example of a torture genius. And it seemed to me that that's what Schumacher was doing with Gurin. He was very obviously saying, look, she is brilliant, but she is meant not to be liked. Ah, I, I, honestly, I hadn't drawn that comparison in in my watching. Admittedly, I'm not a fan. Eric Cantona to me was she, he's in a few adverts and went on to make some awkward movies. Mm. Um, so I, I must say I've never been unsurprised that anyone knows me unengaged un- when it comes to football. Mm. But I, I, I'm intrigued by that, that 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 comparison. The idea of this tortured genius, that you know, the driven person that that, that faces all all odds um, to him. To, to move on a little bit from talking about why we didn't like the film, I think we need to talk about some of the themes that the film tries to present. 
Um, and what I suppose we talked a bit, a bit about these, and the idea and, and the, uh, that you mentioned that I sort of liked is the idea of fear, that the people in this movie are, are afraid of various other people in the movie and other things. And that in many ways like resonated with my experience of the movie, that more than anything else, this film felt like a Greek tragedy. Aside from, obviously, the opening uh, scene in which obviously you see the end of the film and you see Veronica being shot. But all throughout, there's this sort of dramatic irony of the audience being aware that Veronica is barreling ever forwards to her own demise. Mm. And aside from the end, aside from that opening scene which ends the film, you're always feeling that this is going to end badly for you. And it just feels throughout the film. And there's a reoccurring motif that I noted in the film of, of graveyards. There's, there's always shots of graveyards. Mm. Um, even when she was at the end of the film, in which you see the full assassination, there's them pulling guns out of a grave. There's shots of the car going past the grave. And this kind of this feeling of death is always on this on, on this character. Um, and she, the, the kind of impressive nature of the film, and there's one thing that Tremaine did well, is the oppressive nature of the world she was living and this, the weight of everything that's happening to her and around her. You feel it through the entire film. Mm. Even in, it was, I mean, that the the use of graveyards and motifs is a particularly good example, but even in something that you could have thought was innocuous, like these shots of um, Kieran Hines' character, Coach, in the final scene with Frank when he is papped by the photographer. You have those stills, and stills taken in black and white, and you think there's something something foreshadowing about this, even though he is he is not going to be the victim. There was something all the way through the film you had certain things that were used to suggest that things were going to come to a bad end for this character. Mm. And I like the way that the stylistic way that Schumacher did that. As I say, you get that feeling throughout that that it's kind of weighing her down. And even even the villain of the piece if you want to want to call him that, um, <clears throat> in John Gilligan, he is clearly a man who is terrified of prison. Mm. Um, the, the, he's all about being. His whole operation is built on the idea that he doesn't want to be known because that way he won't go back to prison. And it says he's just come out of prison, so clearly something's happened to him in prison, and he's so scared of going back there. But at the same time, everyone, coach, all his men are terrified of him being um, angry at them and going back to prison. And it just feels like throughout, that every single person in this film is scared of something, or scared of someone. Veronica's family is scared for her safety. Veronica herself um, clearly didn't have too much fear, but she's always been done. But it just feels like throughout this, every single character has these fears that they're interacting with that are driving them towards... The, the things they do. And even John Gilligan, who in many ways was the architect of his own destruction, he, he went too far and killed Veronica. And after the story at the end, explains that he went, you know, end up in prison. He, his actions brought down his own empire. And that all comes from his own fear, his fear of being known in prison, ironically, sent him back to prison. Mm. I wonder, actually, you mentioned there that Veronica 
herself doesn't really fear anything until towards the end with Gilligan when she the fear comes out to her. I wonder whether actually she did fear something earlier in the film. Maybe that's what the film is about. That she this drive to maybe there's some fear in this drive to stand up for other people and to publish stories that she didn't feel were being published. I wonder whether there was a fear there, because like you said, this is a climate of fear. Everyone around her is fear, fearful. Her family are, are scared for her. All the gangsters seem to fear each other. And just wonder whether fear was something that drove her. Well, I think it's, it, you know, it's, it's strange, because you feel that if you had really had fear in her life, she wouldn't have done the things. Mm. That she did, um, but there's one line where she says, "You know, it's not that I want to do this; it's that I have to do this." Yeah, and it, it feels like she has this huge fear um, of the world around her, and the fear almost of a bit of irrelevance. Mm. You know, for her, the scoop is important, and I'm not saying that you know, in many ways, she was um, sort of. I don't know what word for it. She wasn't you know, hungry for the fame in any ways, but you know, there's a scene in which all the journalists who talk about her shooting herself in the leg for fame. And, it, you know, there's certainly a fear that everyone else sort of had this idea that she was so hungry for fame and for recognition that she'd do all these things. Mm. You know, it, it, it's, it is notable. I mean, and this is not any disparity of journalists here, but she wasn't campaigning to change laws. She wasn't campaigning to, you know, support. She was just she was writing stories under her own byline. There was an element of wanting to be known in her own story as well. Yes, I th- I think I like what you're saying that she was she feared not being known, being because she equated it with being obsolete in some way, and actually she she decided is says right at the beginning I think that she decides to move away from stories to do with local politics and the church, and she moves into focusing on focusing on drugs so she's she obviously knows that she wants to pursue this particularly she wants to pursue these sorts of stories for her own ends Mm. so you're right it's not just about helping other people it's not just about being community spirited it's about that fear of being forgotten and obviously that you know that and that that, that, this kind of links back to the idea of you know the the Greek tragedy, mm. you know, the traditional stories of people like Oedipus and Odysseus and all that stuff. The idea that everyone's fear of what they thought might happen drove them to actions that made those things happen. Yeah. You know, uh, um, but obviously for her, like, in many ways, her fear didn't come true. She, you know, she had a movie about her and her legacy and impact lives on, but it was at a cost. I, th- I think that's and that's interesting. I was I was just thinking. I was struck by the the speeding at the beginning. That she is. That's one thing she's not scared of, and she's not afraid to drive at nineteen or sixty. She's that's just who she is. That's a part of. It's a part of her character, and if she is, I mean, you're right. If she's a tragic figure, then. Maybe we have to look at that as maybe something to do with her downfall as well. And you start to think, well, was she in the wrong place at the wrong time? Would she have been targeted? 
if she hadn't well, they, been in court for those reasons. I, I, I see for me the speeding felt like a I suppose like an an analogy to, to her life and her style. I you know, she, so, yeah. she she was very in your face in relation to how she dealt with people. You know, she would she literally went up to John Gullen's house and said, you know, tell me about all your illegal drugs mm. and ended up getting herself um beaten up. And her style was very much just get right in there. It wasn't collect sources, it wasn't sort things out, it was literally get right in there. There was only one montage of research, and even that was an aggressively pushy version of research. And so to me, the speeding felt like a, you know, this is a small thing showing as a big thing. Yeah. Um, that, that she, her style, which was driving at 19 or 60, in every bit of her life, ended up costing her. There's a reason why we have speed limits. Mm. Um, and that, that that felt to me like they were just trying to say, you know, this this is who she is. She is the person who will literally walk up to the crime lord and accuse him of being a crime lord. And she doesn't think about the impact. She doesn't think about why you shouldn't drive at 1960. Mm. And she doesn't think about the fact that if she pushes, you know, John Drager so far, at some point he will snap back. You know, he's still a criminal. Mm. And you can't just go around accusing, uh, you know, criminals of of things that they haven't done and it, and it felt like it kind of, it was a a microcosm of her foolhardiness yeah um and that what i felt they were trying to do with that mm. uh, one one other thing i wondered actually i know this is sort of you have to look at the story what actually happened but i wonder why this shooter didn't shoot her in the head when he just got her in the leg? I wonder, like, may, maybe the actual thing in real life happens slightly differently and she surprised the shooter and he didn't manage to get a clean shot. But in, in the film, it definitely shows him hesitating, not being able to shoot her in the head, and then you see her with with a shot to the leg, and I wonder why Schumacher had done that. I don't know. It felt to me, I, my my reading of it was that the the coach put put it up to it, but he's a man who runs brothels. He isn't a man who does assassinations, mm. and so the guy he hired to do it wasn't a good guy to do it with. It wasn't you know someone who's supposed to be doing these sort of things, and so that's what my reading was. That it, it was a bungled attempt rather than anything else. Right. Okay. Um, it didn't feel like a a thing and I think you know, I don't think that everything if it has to make a choice especially when you're dealing with a, a real world story no. but it felt to me it was desperation it was it was John's desperation at the situation mm. and ended up rushing the job and it was just like this would have been a very different thing if he if Frank if had been killed at that point mm. so Sam do you have some recommendations for us I do have a couple of recommendations um the first of these um, is tied, well, not to any of the actors in the film. Um, it's to one of the production figures whose name was actually the first name that appears in the whole film. It's Jerry Bruckheimer. Um, and he's had his name, because of who he is, attached to all sorts of things from... The first Pirates of the Caribbean, which, okay, just the first one, I actually really enjoyed. Less said about the sequels, the better. Agreed. agreed. Um, 
And but then he's also put his name to the Lone Ranger, so we won't talk about that. Um, oh, lordy, I'm not going back there again. <laughs> no, flashbacks. Um, but I did want to mention something from earlier in his career as a bit of a sort of peace offering to Nick Cage fans after last week. Um, my first recommendation this week is so brilliant that it needs me to say nothing more than the two words of the title: Con Air. Uh, my second recommendation stars both of the top billed supporting actors in this week's film, Colin Farrell and Kieran Hines. This is a film that I'm not sure about. I wasn't sure about it at the time and could probably do the second watch to sort out what I think about it, but I seem to remember quite enjoying it. Um, so it's a cautious recommendation for 2008 in Bruges. Fair enough. That was one of mine. Uh, yeah. So it was one of mine. So I'm, I'm going to echo Sam's recommendation there of In Bruges. I did like it when I first saw it. It is for everyone. It is very much a, a dark black comedy. Um, but I very much enjoyed it when when I saw it that first time. Um, so I watched it a few times. So yeah, I, that was my own, but I, I will quickly find a second one while I talk about my, my other other one so my interestingly enough and this is this is a one of those convoluted ones that i like to bring about um the lady who played um the john gilligan's wife bernie gilligan i thought i recognized her i was watching thinking, i know you from somewhere i know you from somewhere and so a bit of imdb digging has turned up where i know her from and that is the two no they didn't do the 1992 film Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, in which she plays the pigeon lady living in Central Park. If anyone remembers this film, it essentially is a transportation of the first one into New York, and she fills the same role as the local street sweeper from the first film. It's a, it's a, it's a minor part in the film, certainly, but I do very much enjoy the second sequel to Home Alone. It isn't quite as good as the first one, but it's certainly a lot better than 3, 4, and 5 that have followed it. So everyone's seen it, I'm sure you have, but I just thought it was interesting, very much kind of a different world um, for a minor player in, in a brutal Irish crime drama to pop up in a uh, a very easygoing family film, only a few years different. Having had In Bruges stolen from under me by Sam... Sorry. It's all right. I'm going to um, recommend a film from 1999 um, that is... It's one of those films that... If you've seen it, you rave about it, but a lot of people haven't. It kind of disappeared into the ether of 90s movies. And that is the film from Mike Newell, Pushing Tin, telling the story of a couple of air traffic controllers and their competing lifestyles. Uh, it's a, it's mainly a, a dual header with um, John Cusack and Billy Bob Thornton, but Kate Blanchett and Angelina, Angelina Jolie play their sparring wives. Um, it's very 90s, it's very funny. If you haven't seen it, it is such a good film. Cusack at in the peak of his his powers, um, and the same for Billy Bob Thornton. So if you haven't, and a lot of people haven't, because it's one of those odd little nineties movies that people haven't seen, I would hardly recommend it. And yeah, I'd echo that as well. If I hadn't stolen in Bruges, then I might have gone for that one. It's a Fair brilliant enough. film. Right then, so guys, no, right you, you first. Okay, so guys, so this is going to be Sam's last podcast for a couple of weeks as he disappears off to be a dad. 
But I will be back next week with some guest hosts, and we are diving into a Spielberg season for the next month. Till then, you can find me on Twitter at Rob Koju. Find me at Life underscore Academic. And you can find both of us at Prestige Podcast. So say goodbye to Sam, and I'll see you back here next week. See you, everyone. The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr! Arg.